In this episode of the museum, I speak with friend and physical therapist, Dr. Chris Estefanos, on the topic of pain. We explore questions such as, do people understand or experience pain differently? Is there a clinical way to perceive, approach, and treat pain, whether it's acute or chronic? And can pain help us transcend our present status and improve our lives? He is also the host or co-host rather of the reintroduction podcast, which can be downloaded on all major platforms or seen online through YouTube and Facebook. Let's get started. The thing with you, though, is you're legitimately someone who has stabbed me in the back. Legit. When I, you know, whenever I bring your name up in and among other people, um, I let them know, like, you stabbed me in the back. Like, three or four times, if I'm not mistaken. Multiple times. In fact, yeah. I, I'm known to be a person who stabs people. Why? It's, it's part of... of how I carry myself. I, I, I like to be known as the one who inflicts pain in order to bring healing. So your new name is Maso Chris. You know, in, in, my, in my office, on the table, when people are being treated, they'll often scream the name of Jesus and amongst many other curses. Um, and I've come up with, they've come up with a nickname for me because the name of Jesus gets sort of spewed out so frequently due to due to pain that they started to call me Padre Chris. Nice, yeah. So what? because they say that the that that they say the name of Jesus in my office more than they do in any other place, so this must be some sort of church or confessional uh, due to me stabbing them in the back with little microfilament needles. I think you have a, you've got a calling in your future. Um, you never know. You never know, Mike. You never know, man. What's the deal with microfilament um, needles? I mean, so just to, you know, it, it sounded cute enough, but um, whenever I have a certain type of back pain, Chris has, you know, stuck these needles in my back. It's not, it's not um, acupuncture. It's a, it's different in principle. Um, and the tools, I assume the tools are different. Than the tool acupuncture. is the same, actually, Mike. Is it? The needle is identical to the needle that is used in acupuncture. That's and nice. in fact, many acupuncturists will actually say that it is acupuncture. And there's this big debate between physical therapists, chiropractors, acupuncturists, medical doctors on what this modality should be called. Um, but for those in the Western scientific approach, they call it dry needling or, um, or intramuscular manual therapy. So taking a muscle and put uh, taking a needle and putting it into a muscle in order to uh, perform a treatment that produces a very successful outcome for people to have sort of acute pain or pain that has manifested for quite some time. I noticed in my case, it's basically what you described. I mean, the pain didn't stop, the problem didn't stop, but the acuteness of it did. And so it, um, it opened up um, abilities, you know, more mobility that I didn't have at the time of the, the procedure. Um, what's the principle behind it? Like, why, why do it? So there's a few theories. Um, but the primary principle is basically in layman's terms, it's when a muscle gets really tight, muscles by nature, when they get taut, they send what they call referred pain to a variety of different places. So for example, the muscle in the back of the shoulder, right? It's one of the rotator cuff muscles. It's called the infraspinatus. And what happens when that muscle is really tight, it can actually refer pain to the front of the shoulder and down to the fingers. So oftentimes people, when they have tight muscles in the back of the shoulder, they'll, they'll think it's a herniated disc. 
and it's often misdiagnosed. And in fact, that's just a tight infraspinatus muscle and it needs to be released. So what we do is we take this fine filament needle, we insert it into this top band of tissue, this will be what most people will call a knot. Um, and what will happen is the muscle will begin to convulse. It's almost like, imagine like you have a, a Charlie horse in a muscle. Mm, yeah. Um, now that convulsion that's happening or that twitch response that's happening is basically a signal is being sent to the brain to reset that, that, that feedback loop that's happening from the brain to the muscle to tell the muscle to relax. So that's in layman's terms, um, in neurophysiological terms, it's rebooting the acetylcholine at the neurosynaptic junction. So basically there's like action potentials that are happening and there's too much acetylcholine that's happening, that's built up, that's causing that action of potential to happen, that firing, that overstimulus of the muscle. And this just resets it. So um, that's one of the theories. The other theory is that it aggregates blood into an area to mm. basically allow the tissue to kind of um, lengthen. Um, amongst a few others, I will spare you the details, but the, the major one that most people believe is the first one that I mentioned, which is that resetting of the sort of the CPU of the muscle. And if you, if, anyone listening hasn't had it done and they get in a situation where it's recommended, um, I can, I can attest. Um, you, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, Mike, and this is the fascinating thing about this modality. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's turf wars on it. So because we use an acupuncture needle, um, many acupuncturists say that we are stepping on their turf, uh, because we're using the tool that they use in terms of their profession. So in some states, actually, it's illegal. So for physical therapists to perform this modality, so you can, in the state of California, cannot do it. In the state of Florida, cannot do it. In the state of New York, New Jersey, Washington state, there's like, I think, eight or nine states in this, in this country that have hindered physical therapists from performing this modality because the acupuncture lobby has worked aggressively against the American Physical Therapy Association and has basically deemed it illegal in the Board of Health in those states. What's wild is that like these um, these situations seem to be related to an underlying premise that a person's profession is defined by the tools used. And it's just like I know in California, um, a number of, like I, I can't remove someone's tattoo if I know how to do it you know, because of the type of laser that would be required to, to do that. But if I go drive to Vegas, you know, like it's less of an issue, right? And I don't know what the laws are today, but, you know, if you, I think the exception was you could be a PA or something if you're um, operating under the uh, supervision, which just maybe means malpractice insurance um, of some kind of physician, you know, who's cleared to do it, who has a, a California medical license. And it's just, it's weird to me because uh, the, the job in your case is, you know, doctor of physical therapy, your, your, um, your primary mission, you know, has to do with this, well, you could define it better than Restoring I Restoring human movement. Yeah. Uh, we, we, are, we are doctors of human movement. We want people to move better and move efficiently. Perfect. Thank you for jumping in and saving me on that. I mean, it's, um, that's it. And that shouldn't be bound by a tool or not. It should be bound by what the mission is, right? And so the, the, the career or the profession, um, the titling, you know, the qualifications should be able to use what's necessary to accomplish, you know, whatever that goal is. And I think it's, um, yeah, quite lame. <laughs> I, I mean, listen, there for as far as uh, I remember, there's always been turf wars around what each medical profession can do. You know, for example, uh, chiropractors like to say that they are the only ones that uh, manipulate joints, but osteopaths manipulate joints, physical therapists manipulate joints, athletic trainers manipulate joints. Um, so there was a turf war on, on that specific issue as well in the, the allied health professions, so to speak. Um, 
So it's just the reality of things. Like, you know, we miss the fundamental goal of each profession, which is the patient. Yeah. To do better, to move better. And as long as a person is uh, skilled and capable of doing that modality that is being provided, live and let live, man. If a chiropractor is doing dry needling or if a chiropractor is giving therapeutic exercise to patients, go for it. Hallelujah. I'm not going to, as a physical therapist, I'm not going to say, hey, you're not allowed to prescribe exercises because you are not a physical therapist. Like, no, go for it. Taking my business. Yeah. Like it's, it's all about business, all about money in the end. You know, we love, we love to be protective of that, which we think is ours. Well, I, I, I can't wait till the hypnotherapists hear about this and, uh, <laughs> you know, get in on all, all those psychiatrists out there. <laughs> trying to make some kind of impact but think about it life coaching that's another one. Oh right? yeah the well, therapists the psychologists hate the idea of somebody being a life coach like how dare you go to school for six months or do a certification course and think you can do what i do yeah so different stuff man although yeah the people say that it overlaps but i digress uh it, you know life is full of digressions um you know, yours, your major digression, of course, being, you know, your career track, like, why did you want to get into uh, physical therapy? And at the level that you did, like, why physical therapy? Why helping people move? What, what about that beyond just like, okay, seems interesting. So for me, the path to physical therapy was all about people. Um, my whole path was I got injured. I was an athlete. Um, I've been injured a number of times throughout my athletic career. Um, but I was actually on track to be a physician. Um, and then I started to spend a lot of time with physicians and I realized that they don't actually spend that much time with their patients. It's kind of a very transactional relationship. Um, and that's might be due to the systems in which these physicians operate in. Um, but my experience from that was it was uh, very transactional, not very, there was no connection that was sort of created with patients. Um, and then I shadowed a few physical therapists and I was amazed how they were capable of bringing somebody in who was in pain, unhappy, feeling hopeless, um, feeling this sense of like, man, am I ever going to get through this? And then a few months later, they're on their feet again, doing the things that which they love. It's it's almost like um, I was in my past life. I was a I was a barber, you know, and I was a barber in a New York City barber shop for seven years. Um, and when somebody would walk in with like a huge fro, and they would you they would look at themselves and be like, "Man, I'm so sorry. It's been a while since I've come in." And I'd always be like, "Oh, it's no worry. Don't worry about it." But then when you turn the chair, so you have their back to the mirror the whole time. You never want them to see the process because you know when you're cutting their hair, you, there may be a line in their head. They may and they get stressed out. So you always turn the person away from the mirror. And then when they finish the haircut and you flip the the chair and they'd be looking at themselves, it was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like. You know, Frankenstein walked in and then, you know, Brad Pitt walked out. There's like a huge transformation that would happen in a person. And the smile that a person would have um, due to that sort of transformation was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what that it's physical therapy is almost the continuity of being a barber. It's except it's a physical thing. One was more of a of a cosmetology sort of you know exterior this is more of a physiological biological um manifestation of healing yeah and uh it's cool it's just a cool so that was like my real draw to physical therapy i wanted to help people be better to be a better version of themselves to be able to achieve the goals that they wanted to achieve um and it just happened to be the profession in which i found a connection to I liked sports I worked with professional athletes early in my career um, and now I work with people that have uh, conditions in which they probably will not get better from mm. so more pa patients with chronic pain patients with autoimmune disorders uh, patients with issues that they won't get better better in terms of the medical sense, but they'll be better in terms of being able to do the things that they like to do. So they'll be more functional. They'll be able to enjoy life more. And that's really how my frame of uh, mind has changed about pain and about physical therapy. I, I get the patients who nobody's given them hope. 
Oh, and that's the that's the type of clientele that I have these days. Yeah, I mean, there certainly seems to in in both cases the the barbership, um, you know, or barberhood. I I don't know how we might describe it, but um, you know, being a barber and being a physical therapist, there's a psychological element involved, and it seems like, you know, what what you do is you provide a um, a certain degree of transformation, you know, or you facilitate. Maybe you're a facilitator of, of transformation uh, in both cases. Yeah. And um, usually, I mean, well, let's not say usually, but hopefully <laughs> it's it's toward a uh, positive, um, I wanted to say positive end, but a restorative end, right? Like, you know, with the, the matted wild hair, you know, you know, sorry, boss, I haven't come in and, and gotten a, a cut in a while, um, you know, versus someone who's injured. Or, you know, maybe they're suffering from a debilitation, like you said, if it's autoimmune, um, you know, there's a there's something that's gone off from what was a better previous norm, right? Like where the norm was better and now something has moved away from that norm. Mm-hmm. And now um, here you are and, and you're you're basically you're called in this case to. Um, help transform that or redirect it toward normal. And, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was how, you know, just in talking about pain, because pain is a fascinating uh, subject for me, as you know. And, um, you know, what, how do we, or or how does pain rather um, create parameters for understanding normal? You know, and I'm not the only one. I I have um, a lot of people close to me who have um, you know, experienced debilitating injury, to where now, guess what? Um, this is gonna, this isn't going away. So now, what do you do? And um, how do we understand normal? How does pain, you know, demarcate normal? Mm-hmm. I think there. I think that's a really that's a good question, Mike. Um, in my experience, there are two types of patients that encounter pain. There are the patients that encounter pain and their pain becomes the center of their universe. And that is the only thing that they can focus on. And it hinders their mind. It hinders their function. It hinders their relationships. It hinders their whole outlook on life. Um, and there is the other approach which is i have pain cool let's get on with our life like it's not going away i know it's there but i acknowledge it and i put it aside um and one can start at sort of that victim person in pain Mm -hmm. um and move into what i call the victor who has basically moved through the pain and it's not a hindrance anymore. Um, And often, sometimes, in rare circumstances, the victor can become the victim again. So those are the two philosophies that I've seen uh, or the two psychological approaches that I've seen patients come in with. Um, And the ones that... Because pain can make you the center of the universe. If you follow me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, did I lose you at all? No, no. I'm just thinking. Um, and by that, I, I guess you mean, you know, where the focus is directed. And, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, pain then, like if it becomes, even if it's not a focus, if it's presence, right? Like the, the presentness of pain is... Um, just so evident in the way we experience life that things like that impact our language. They impact the way we talk about ourselves mm-hmm. um, to people. Uh, I know, you know, there's folks I know who they have mild chronic pains, but now they um, they complain all the time. And, you know, <laughs> I just want to say, listen, I I want to value you know, your, their experience. And I want to like care and I want to be caring and, um, on, on the positive end, but at the same time, like, 
I don't want to feed the beast. Like, you know, um, suck it up, let's go. And uh, I, I suppose there's any number of domains that can be generated through the pain experience, right? And, and I guess maybe we mean the interpretation of pain. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, when you get into the idea of chronic pain, we know that, or what they, they've rebranded it now is not chronic pain, they call it persistent pain. Mm. When you get into the topic of persistent pain, you find that most of those patients that have persistent pain, there is no mechanical cause anymore of that pain. Meaning, we know if a person has a herniated disc, that anywhere from six months to a year after the disc herniates, usually it heals there are a bunch of there's a bunch of articles that talk about kind of pre and post timeline herniated discs now a person can re-aggravate it through some sort of movement and that yeah. can give a new acute version of pain but some people when they see their mris that say lumbar disc herniation at l4 l5 they define their experience by an image rather than their 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 symptoms or how they feel dictates how they live so there is a crazy article that pulled a bunch of people off the street randomly and they did mris on them and they found that a number of those people i think it was like 50 or 60 percent of those people had pretty terrible mris <laughs> and zero symptoms and it's fascinating because once you tell somebody there's something wrong with them, mm -hmm. the power of language, you are capable of instilling in them a sense of fear or a sense of hope. Mm -hmm. And I find that patients will come in often and say, I have a tear. When you use the word, I have a tear to them, they're like, oh my gosh, something is broken. Something is ripped. How is that tear going to heal? Versus if you say there, you have a minor injury in your back and it's going to heal. They're like, oh, okay, okay, that's fine. So language, the language that a doctor or a healthcare professional uses can manifest a psychological response in a patient that either moves them to believe that they're going to get better or moves them to believe that they're going to get worse. So language matters and the language that healthcare workers use elicit a sense of hopelessness or hopefulness in the patient. Um, so I like drill in my staff, be careful with language. Language has a huge bearing on the patient. Careful not to catastrophize, because if you to catastrophize, the patient will get worse. But if you instill hope in them, I promise you the power of the mind is capable of making that person's MRI, which is terrible in medical terms, actually not manifest symptoms that are terrible. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it seems to me that there, I don't know if I want to call it liturgical or not, but there's like part of the healing process, right? Um, you res One responds to the condition, let's say the pain, and we'll use the, the MRI, whatever yeah. the condition is. They come in by entering into your office the healing process has begun by seeing you, right? Or by seeing the, the doctor. Um, now they've gotten uh, connected to the expert in the case. And this person should, or at least in the, the mind of the patient, they wouldn't be going to that person if um, the person didn't know, you know, how to address the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, or at least... I mean, address doesn't always mean fix. So address is good. Um, how to address the issue. And um, what we say in that ritualized process of entry, of entry from one layer to the lobby to the you know exam room, right? Like the, every step closer is a step closer toward real healing, right? But what's spoken matters because what's spoken is the way in which uh, that person understands themselves now through the eyes of another. I mean, it's my interpretation of it, but I know that I, I've dealt with a lot of um, 
uh, I'll apply this more to physicians, um, but people who have really poor bedside manner and really good bedside manner, and they may misperceive their own craft as something that is a set of qualifications and certifications rather than um, a mark of identity, maybe. And those awesome doctors that, you know, we've had um, over the years are the ones that know how to speak a healing word and the terrible ones. Uh, and there's terrible doctors. Let me be quite frank. Uh, in in the, yeah. the, <laughs> the figures I'm giving apply to all fields, not just medicine, yeah. but, you know, it, let's divide it three ways. Maybe it's not 33.3 for each group, but there are the excellent, the people who are called to do it. They like, that's what they need to be doing. There's people who are good enough. They're not bad. You know, they get the job done. Um, and then there's people who you wonder, how did you even get involved in this? And can you just leave? Can you um, be somewhere else? And uh, I, I think that not enough attention's paid to bedside manner and to speaking the right way. And because it's how we imagine the condition, as yeah. you've said. Um, the question I have for you is, can we do something about this at the level of development, right? Like if we've got kids, let's say, and, uh, <laughs> you know, dads and moms, and look, I'm generalizing. I don't care. I'm just going to generalize right now. But, um, you know, kid falls, uh, you wink at the kid and say, you know, come on, let's go. Not fast enough. Right. Or sh shake it off maybe as a step down because then it acknowledges the pain event. Right. That happened. But if it's ignored, it's one thing. If it's, you know, shake it off, it's acknowledging it, but toughening up to it. Or do we run? you know, as some parents do, uh, grab the child and say, oh, oh, I care. I care so deeply, you know, which we do, right? I mean, I hope. Um, but, you know, how are we setting a young human up for developing the way in which that human is going to interface with pain events throughout life? And it, I haven't really thought about it until this conversation, but because um, I typically think about it in terms of language and perception. You know, and, you know what I do with my kids is uh, anytime one of my kids falls, I never say it's okay. I always kneel down at their level and I say, did that hurt? So I acknowledge that I see that something hurt them. And then I say, would you like a hug? So that like I'm I'm basically there in the midst of their pain, like I'm not I'm not trying to get them to not acknowledge their pain. I'm not trying to discount their pain. I'm trying to be there with them in their pain, and trying to give them the comfort necessary to be able to get up on their feet and keep on going. Um, and I kind of liken that to what I do every day with patients, right? Like these. Patients are coming in and they're experiencing pain. And I'm not saying it's okay. I say, I hear you. Your pain is real. You're experiencing it as real. I want to be here to walk with you through that pain and get that pain to no longer be a hindrance for you to live life in the way that you want to live it. Um, so I think you see the power in parents to really empathize with their children and allow them to be empathetic by proxy. Mm -hmm. Like I'm seeing my daughter now when she sees my son, they're twins. Uh, when she falls, she'll come and she'll rub him on the back and say, hug, hug. So I'm seeing how now she's modeling what we do with her to her brother. And that's beautiful because she's now seeing her brother in pain and sort of responding to that pain in a way that is so beautiful. Yeah. So, 
I, I think that's like you, you you caught me on the fly on that, but I I I, I will I will I, I do want to say something about the power of parents, yeah, in their ability to also instill in their children, in a to, in a sense of be to be jerks, you know, um, or to be so insecure and have no confidence in themselves and now have no ability to navigate struggle. Mm-hmm. Like if you have a parent that coddles their kid, the kid when they experience pain doesn't know how to cope. When you have a parent that discounts every experience that a kid has, the kid becomes sort of desensitized. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we all are a product of our parents in a way. The most influential relationships that all humans have is with their caregivers. I've seen, um, you know, certain similar injuries in different contexts, like with one parent, uh, (laughs) the child will be quiet. And with, let's say, a a grandparent, uh, the child will bawl for hours. Uh, You know, when the grandparent leaves, the the crying stops. And so I think the way we respond to it, it certainly, it affects behavior, um, without a doubt but then you know i'm 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 curious to see how like over a life course perspective you know how that impacts let's say i don't want to discount anything but call it real injuries mm-hmm. you know that happen throughout life and um how do we measure pain right like is pain conditional is it something that you know okay you and i um at some point in our lives were athletic <laughs> you still might be you know um Okay, well, maybe I might be too, but um, we're a halfway athletes. Halfway athletes. Yeah, we have one foot out the door. That's right. You know, That's one right. foot, one knee, uh, one hip. You know, several other joints, part of that out the door. But you know, when you're a uh, an athlete, you train and you you work against resistance, and part of that resistance could be interpreted with the word pain. I mean, even our like, what do we mean? we we say the word right and i think um you know what's the difference between work and toil for example you know the the work that bothers you and so what's what's really painful and what's annoying you know and i think that that might be conditional that may be something we can um reevaluate or recalibrate you know do you notice that with your patients that you know they find that their pain isn't always the same, or maybe they've grown, call it stronger. I mean, you maybe you have a better term, um, but they, they deal with it in a, a different way, maybe. You know when people feel the most pain, Mike? When no one listens? Take a guess. When do people's pain, when is people's pain magnified? Oh, golly. Yes. When they're around people. Nope. Uh, when they're alone. When they're alone. Yeah. At night. When it's dark, there's uh-huh. no outside stimulus. It's just them in bed looking up at a ceiling, and that's when people's pain is often the worst. Interesting. So there's no distractions. They dialoguing with the pain. Yeah. Oh, my right hip hurts. Oh, uh, like you, you can, you can almost personify it. You know, when you're by yourself. There's no way to distract yourself. Actually, modern paint science is talking about how to distract yourself from pain. Oh, you know? interesting. I mean, so that if you just if one distracts from pain, they're making the assumption that pain is a um, a thing apart from the emotional um, connection to the sensation, right? Yes. So we call that sensitization. So when a person, for example, has an itch, Mm -hmm. you ever notice this? And then that itch, they scratch it. There is this awareness now that there's something that was itched, there was something that was scratched, and then you keep on scratching. And then you break the skin, and now you have a cut. And now that cut is now an actual injury that right. now sends a feedback loop to the brain again. So you've now oversensitized that itch and made it actually something painful. 
Mm-hmm. So by focusing on it more and more, you've actually magnified it. That's why some people with chronic pain or persistent pain, what feels as a pinch mm-hmm. to you and I feels like somebody's stabbing them. Mm. It's not that the pain isn't real. What they're feeling is literally real that somebody's stabbing them. But it's not because the the um, external stimulus should cause that manifestation of pain. It's that they are oversensitized to it. So that feedback loop that's going through that brain to that specific area is just like high alert, high alert, high alert. So yeah, you can desensitize to pain and that's the whole thing. That's the whole approach to modern pain science is desensitization, figuring out how to distract a person from their their stimulus, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, some folks who, you know, maybe they were less um, active or athletic, let's say, and, you know, um, one day they have to shovel snow and they don't, they're just not used to doing that. And then they're laid up in bed for three days, yep. can't move. Um, but that's, that's not just, you know, something located in the interpretation. There's, you know, those muscles haven't been used. Correct. You know, and on the opposite end, the people who are used to shoveling snow frequently, they have a conditioned response in terms of their muscular uh, muscularity that prepares them to deal with the event, which thus doesn't cause pain, right? The Navy SEAL who gets yeah. thrown in, in sub-freezing wet temperatures on a beach to condition them to tolerate terrible conditions in war, you know? Um, or the person who's thrown in the water and forced to hold his breath, he conditions himself to be able to sustain long periods of time without oxygen. The marathon runner who starts with one mile and then ends up you know, running a marathon, two marathons, an ultra marathon. How do they get to that point? There is a conditioning that happens um, and it's through ongoing exposure that allows them to get more conditioned to your point. Could we then say that pain? So you talked about pain earlier as, um, you know, the two types of folks, the, the people who um, kind of shrug it off or say it's there, let's deal with it. Let's, you know, figure it out. And then others, Oh, you know, they, they, they're too engaged in their pain. And for them, it, it's persistently chronic. Oh, I use both terms. Um, is there a third category, you know, the, the masochist or the maso Chris, uh, as we're calling you now, um, <laughs> who like, who uses pain to be transformative, right? Because if, if pain keeps getting redefined, if pain then is a, it's an alert, Right. If you uh, and I've understood this from an at least from high school sports uh, that it's an alarm, like an alarm clock, and it's letting you know something's happening. Um, and you know you can deal with your alarm clock all sorts of ways. You can try and maybe ignore it, but you still got to get your task done. Uh, and then pretty soon you don't consciously acknowledge it, and then the you know maybe that becomes normal. Maybe other noises start going off in, in your household and you just, you don't, you transcend them, right? They become a part of the norm redefined, or maybe you, the thing breaks because it's been going off and it's, I don't know, the, the metaphors breaking yeah. down here. No, but. no, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. I think there are some people who can be conditioned by pain for sure. Uh, somebody who's had a major procedure before, if they have to have another procedure, they're more prepared for it. Um, I think for sure that's a fact, right? Like a person who, like, for example, I used to competitively lift weights when I was in high school. And I know the feeling very strongly of what it feels like to be really, really sore. Like when you can't lift your arms, you can't like, you can't get up out of bed because your core is so exhausted. You're so sore. I know that type of experience 
because of prior experience. So now when I go to the gym, when I'm like an old, you know, rag and I'm trying to walk into the gym and I work out pretty aggressively because I think I'm still my high school self and the next day I can't walk, I don't think that that's, I've injured myself. I know that that's what we call delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, I know that from prior experience. That prior experience of pain has given me the understanding of what the current experience is. So yeah, there are some people that their pain helps, their pain is a precursor for their future pains um, ease, so to speak. No, I like that. And I, I think that, you know, especially in sports, um, you, you get this opportunity to transcend, you know, um, limits, boundaries, um, standards, and you create new limits, boundaries, standards with regard to things like that. And pain's a useful tool for that pain. Um, at least the way I, um, I played contact sports growing up. And so it pain for me was a, um, a way of measuring progress, you know, and, um, no pain, no gain. Well, and if you, if you don't hit that point of pain too, like, and you're not the best on the team or the best in the league, something's off, right? Like you haven't pushed further then you need to, right? Or, or you haven't gone to um, the extent you need to, to prepare yourself, to condition yourself uh, for the events. Um, and I think that it's translatable to, you know, beyond athletics, right? Like, you know, we talked about spirituality and stuff, and um, there's all sorts of examples of people who they utilize pain for a, a different sort of awareness and, um you know, there's, I know of clergy, like in the monastic life who wear um, sackcloth, you know, underneath their clothes. Mm -hmm. And if you felt like burlap or, you know, sack, um, it's not pleasant. You know, it's not, it's definitely not silk. It's not satin. It's not even cotton, right? Like it's, it's what 50 grit sandpaper. <laughs> you know, but you use that and all of a sudden um, your discomfort becomes your new level of awareness. And maybe it's not a comfort, but maybe the awareness of it drives you towards something else, you know, mentally. And, you know, in that process, there could be comfort in the process, maybe not in what's happening, you know, at the physical level. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I like that because I think pain is a beautiful thing, right? Like I have some persistent pain. Yeah. I have a number of herniated discs in my back. And first of all, that pain lets me know that I'm alive. I mean... <laughs> Uh, second of all, that pain makes me uniquely capable to empathize with those who have pain. Yeah. And to sympathize with those who have pain. Uh, third, that pain is almost like, um, you know, back to that analogy with working out, right? When I don't get sore, I know that I didn't work out. When my back doesn't hurt, I know I haven't had a physically rigorous day. It's almost like that back pain has to manifest in order for me to know that I've had like a day in which like last week in the Orthodox Church, it was Holy Week. And I was standing for many hours during different services at church. And by the end of each day, I was like, oh, like I felt like a 98 year old man with my back. Yeah. Uh, but it was like, yes. I stood, I prayed, like I felt like you felt the outcome of the day in your body. I heard some, well, I heard someone actually, uh, you know, post something online um, referring to those, you know, those um, Orthodox burpees, you know, because there's so many prostrations for those listening who aren't from that tradition, like uh, during 
um, these services, you know, people go from a standing position, you know, down to the ground to a bowing position. They push up with their arms and go stand again. And this is repeated uh, numerous times and, and different days. Like you're doing it all day in some on Friday. Right? Got big pecs and big triceps, you know, it's huge. Well, my response is like, I know a lot of bishops with some thick quads, you That's know, right. from all of this activity. But, um, yeah, I feel the same way. Like I, um, I don't feel like I've been productive if I, I like, I, I find myself justifying the workout by like, well, you know, okay, I'm just, I'm at least keeping my circulation up. I'm, uh, you know, uh, working on a routine, uh, check, check those boxes, you know, like I've done something mildly productive, but I haven't advanced. And I think pain, um, is great in that in that regard and and sometimes when we talk about pain we're we're misunderstood as talking about suffering right like and that might be applicable to those with the persistent pain or the chronic pain you talked about earlier but even beyond that you know emotions things like that there's there's an interpretation of pain that is redefined and we call it what suffering and i think that um that almost and I'd love to hear your feedback on this, but it seems like it, it leaves the domain of the, the, the physician, the physical therapist and enters um, the realm of the psychologist and psychiatrist who's also a physician, but yeah. you know, it, it seems to move that direction. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you can have pain and not suffer. Right. You know, for sure. Um goes back to what I said earlier. Some people's pain becomes the center of their universe. Mm -hmm. And when it becomes their center of their universe, they suffer because they cannot live fulfilled life. They cannot live a life in which they feel like they have something to contribute. Because it becomes very self-centered pain. And that pain leads to suffering. Like, because... Their world is disoriented. Their world is, they don't feel whole. They don't feel like they are the version of what they should be. Mm-hmm. Right. But by proxy, when you don't feel whole, when you don't feel like you are the best version of yourself, you are incapable of interacting with the world around you in a way that you experience the joys that life has to offer so to speak um and i think also it's interesting i'll tell you a story mark that you brought to mind right now there was uh when i was in kenya in 2007 doing a a missionary medical missionary trip um i remember walking in nairobi Mm -hmm. and i was wearing these nice pair of nike sneakers and all of a sudden, I stepped into this, like, pit of mud. And this little kid, who is this, one of the street children in Kenya, said, Sir, let me have your shoe. I'll go wash it for you. So I gave him my shoes. And I'm walking on the streets of Kenya with socks. And my feet were killing me, Mike. Like, killing me. Because these are pebbled streets. It's not like they're paved. Right. I didn't like, you know. And... My whole focus in that moment was how annoyed I was that I stepped into this muddy hole and how my sneakers got messed up and how much my feet hurt. My experience was the center of the universe in that moment. Mm. And this kid wasn't wearing shoes. And he ran barefoot to wash my shoes and then brought them back to me And I noticed when he came back that his feet were bloody. He didn't even flinch. Here I was, the guy who had socks on, the guy who has walked for all this period of time with nice Nikes on. And here is the street kid who's not wearing shoes. And actually a lot of the kids will wear bottles on their feet strapped with like, with plat, with like some sort of straw. Um, but they've conditioned themselves and when they get those type of shoes, they're like, oh my gosh, a bottle. Wow. This is amazing. 
I made my painful experience the center of my universe that I was incapable of seeing this little kid who didn't even have shoes on. And that's what, that's what, in that moment I experienced pain, but I suffered as a result of being incapable of seeing the world around me with the lens that I should have seen it with. This kid has pain in his feet. Literally, he has a mechanical manifestation of pain, which blood on his feet, but he is willing to run and wash my shoes so that I don't in encounter pain. And man, that is the victor, and I am the victim. That is the kid is a baller, yeah. and I'm this loser who is like incapable of seeing the world the way it should be seen. Um, and this kid is happier than I am, and I'm the Westerner with all this money, but this kid lives on the street, and he's experiencing joy because he was able to bring a little bit of hope to me in that moment. And I'll never forget Oh, that I like moment. that. That's awesome. I'll never forget that moment. It reminds me of, uh, you know, all the football players down in American Samoa who are like, they have old equipment if they have any working equipment, often don't have, you know, proper footwear. And they play on uh, fields, you know, that barely have any vegetation or have lava rocks, you know, and you get tackled and like, that's the norm, right? And so uh, as you're talking, I'm, I'm wondering, is softness suffering, you know, but at the same time, maybe in some cases, softness is suffering. But then I think, okay, you also treat a number of people with autoimmune issues, maybe things like rheumatoid arthritis, some, I don't, that's a popular one that I I'm familiar with. And, um, in those cases where you don't choose the pain, right. Where you can't choose to go up a hill to go, you know, run on pebbles and, um, through, you know, um, barbed, uh, what thistle or, you know, whatever the, the plants are that stick in our feet, right? Like if you can't choose that, um, can you somehow reinterpret the, the suffering so that you just acknowledge the pain and, you know, uh, in your case, as a, wow. someone who treats that, what do you do? I, uh, I have a patient who I can speak about. I'm not going to disclose any HIPAA violations here. So I have a patient of mine who has, I see her for two hours every week. One session, two hours ongoing. And this woman, her medical file is probably this thick with different diagnoses. She doesn't have one autoimmune. She has like seven. And this woman is the most empathetic, selfless, giving, kind person that I've encountered. She... It, it, she always goes beyond herself to help others. So yeah, she has the physical manifestation of pain on a regular basis. She experiences a lot of pain to the point that she has difficulty getting out of bed most days. Yeah. But she is the most joyful person. So she hasn't let herself suffer as a result of her pain. She's let herself constantly go beyond herself to help other people and that's actually one of the ways we encourage people to overcome their own pain we tell them go do something for someone mm -hmm. right because we know even in the study of happiness right there is actually happiness is an area of study for people they say that there are three things that scientists have studied that have produced happier outcomes in people right the number one is deep and meaningful relationships the number two is acts of service giving of yourself to others and number three is gratitude hmm. people that practice those three things leave lead more happy and fulfilled lives so that's what we encourage people in chronic pain or persistent pain to do to figure out how they can invite not really invite to figure out how they can extend themselves in deep and meaningful relationships even in the midst of their pain 
We figure out how they can serve others by extending themselves to others and how they can find the good in life, even in the midst of the pain. Is it, is it then worthwhile to, um, well, this is ridiculous for me to say it this way, but to create a happy environment in life, which we should do anyway. Right. Uh, But if, you know, if, if someone, let me, let's start with someone close to us, a uh, friend or family, you know, is someone who is suffering. Is it good to create a jovial, uh, positive environment? Because it seems like as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, well, if I'm in pain and everyone is, you know, yelling, screaming, upset, or like there's a lot of negative input, um, it seems that what you described in that that case that you mentioned was maybe that person's around some kind of positive environment, and maybe that um, you know positive feedback and those positive inputs are actually you know um, turning off you know those suffering alarms emerging from the the pain sensation that is present. Stress we know is a huge input for pain. Yeah. We, there's actually an amazing documentary from the National Geographic that came out years ago. It's called Stress, the Portrait of a Killer. Wow. I like and it. It talks about how as animals, like when a zebra is about to be attacked by a lion, stress is a positive thing. Yeah. You know, the fight or flight response of the zebra kicks in to protect itself, a self-preservation mode, because they're about to be eaten by a lion. But humans constantly live in that fight or flight response and what that fight or flight response does is manifest in pathology Mm. but yes for sure um this the the environment in which we put ourselves whether it be positive or negative has an impact on our experience right psychologically physiologically uh musculoskeletally there's just so much you know, we know that stress is terrible, but we know that being in an environment in which you are uplifted and encouraged is wonderful. And it's yeah. great for people. That's why support groups are helpful, you know, for people in pain and for different diagnoses, autoimmune diseases, because they have somebody there in relationships in which can lift them up and push them to a place in which they are no longer making themselves the center of the world. I love that. That's uh you know, it even makes me a little self-reflective too. And, um, mostly in the sense of maybe not for pain, but, you know, being when something is the focus of who and what you are, at least in the moment, right. For you, your shoes, the annoyance. Um, and when you focus on things like that, it seems to take away the experiences, uh, the others around you and maybe through that opportunities for empathy. And, um, you know, I think, okay, well, if there's people and you often, we don't know, right. We don't know who's in pain unless it's glaringly obvious. Like I know, I mean, there's some people you look at, you know, okay, well that person's, you know, I can see their legs. I, I can see the way they walk. You don't walk that way unless something hurts. Right. But a lot of other people, you just don't know. I mean, people may not, you know, when they encounter you or me, they may not know our conditions, you know, um, and what that plays into how we talk. Right. And maybe we we mask it well, you know, with our beautiful smiles. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, charming personalities, um, the tears of the clown, so to speak. No, no that's too much. That's too much. But, um, you know, just thinking about myself, like, I don't know the other person and I don't know what that experience is and, you know, what a nice thing it could be if I'm, you know, um, creating at least a cloud around me of, um, of something positive and, and happy. For sure. I would even, uh, for those who are listening, I would even also take that one step further in... There are many people, you're right, that walk around with invisible illnesses and pain. Um, We don't know what people are carrying. 
We don't know what type of suffering they are encountering on a regular basis. I'll give you a perfect story of that that happened to me last week. One of my patients, who is the sweetest, nicest, kindest person, I love this guy. He walked in um, and he was like so rude. Like I've never, he was like being rude to my, uh, my office manager, just was like in a bad mood. And I'm like, what is going on with this guy? Like, what's his deal? He walks out, he ends up leaving the office, he slams the door, he's just being like a total jerk. Find out he just got a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Um, and he was really worked up that day because his fear was manifesting and a lot of psychological pain yeah. for him. Um, and when I learned that, I mean, I gave the guy the benefit of the doubt in that moment because I know his character. But most of us in society don't have lost the ability to give people the benefit of the doubt. Mm. And we've lost the ability to take a step back and say, maybe that person is going through something. Not saying we excuse people's behavior. Like being in pain doesn't mean that I have, I'm entitled to be a jerk. But I think giving a person the benefit of the doubt in a moment will often lead to you also being more fulfilled and happy and you not experiencing pain as a result of somebody else's outburst. Meaning, if I encounter somebody who's a total jerk, oftentimes that experience with that jerk can lead to me experiencing pain in some capacity. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right, right. So if I encounter that person, and that doesn't really phase me because I'm like, oh, maybe that person is going through a hard time. You know, or maybe that person got a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Just giving the person the benefit of the doubt, it leads me to not letting that person control how I live on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, you're not a victim of that person's moment. We let people control our emotions and our... Uh, how many people come home? You would never believe what happened to me today at the supermarket. Yeah. The, the person who was putting my bags, my groceries in the bag was such a... We, like... We hold these encounters as things that allow us to not have pain but to suffer because it becomes a ongoing experience that we repeat. It's not the moment. It's the it's the thereafter of the moment. I, I have that exact um, set of experiences. And in fact, when we were living in Baltimore, um, there was a, a woman who... Um, I forget if she was a security guard or what she was doing, but she, you know, was m miserably not herself and unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, come to find out, I think it was her nephew who was murdered, you know, oh, the, wow. the, just before that. And it's like, you know, after that moment, I, I, I started to see that person's experience in a lot of the, um, the, people who like at the grocery store, right? The, the problematic giant employees or, or whomever they are. And um, it, it's something to, it's some, it, it's something to think about something to be conscious of something to, you know, almost if, I don't know if you're for daily affirmations or things like that, but to be aware of on a daily basis. And, you know, when people give thanks, if they do, if you don't, you should give thanks, um, you know, and if, and when you do, um, you know, be mindful of those who aren't you mm. be mindful of the, call them the other, call them your neighbor, whatever it is. Um, man, I, I had a, a great chat with you. Um, any final thoughts for us? And, um, if there's anything you'd like to plug, you know, this is your time. Um, <laughs> um hmm. I think, what I would love for people to walk away from this conversation is you are in control of how you experience the things that life throw at you. Meaning life will bring hardship. Life will bring pain. Life will bring circumstances in which you have the choice to either choose joy or to choose suffering. And the beauty is that pain often produces 
thicker skin. Hmm. So there's a beauty in pain. There's a beauty in trial. There's a beauty in hardship. In our society, we have ran away from that. Um, but I, I firmly believe that those who have suffered are uniquely sympathetic and empathetic to a world in which we desperately need more empathy and more sympathy. Um, so I would just encourage people like, hey, from a physical therapist to the world out there, pain is not your worst enemy. Uh, it could be a catalyst for your growth as a human. Um, and finally, if uh, you are interested in a podcast, uh, I, with a dear friend of mine, host a podcast called The Reintroduction Podcast. And it's a podcast that has a more spiritual undertone um, that talks about the misconceptions that people have about God and about one another. So feel free to check that out. Uh, we're on season two and we're about to wrap it up in season three. Uh, feel free to check it out and uh, shoot me a comment or let us know how you like it. But Mike, thank you so much for having me this afternoon. I've really enjoyed being on with you. I hope that I said uh, something that was productive. Um, All I know is, you know, we got to go get after it. Uh, next time I see you, uh, I'll be out there in September and um, we're going to hit a few hills. And there we uh, go, man. Ready. Bring it, baby. Throw up some throw up some barbells while we're at it. <laughs> All right, brother. Take care. Appreciate you, you. Love you. Take care. See everybody.